Small Business and Startup Stories DSM features conversations with small business owners who share both their victories and failures on their path to success. Small Business and Startup Stories DSM is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash smallbusiness. I'm your host, Mike Caldwell. Sul Hawk, welcome to Startup Stories. Why did you move to Des Moines? Um, I moved here a couple of years ago because I wanted to start a fitness app, um, one that was like Class Plus, but for medium-sized cities. And the kind of two cities I pinpointed with the nearest proximity to each other was Des Moines and Omaha. So it was like one of these two places. And my parents live in Ames, Iowa. So it kind of made sense to move here and, and live a little closer to them. Uh, and that was kind of the main reason. But But then I ended up not pursuing that project because other projects kind of came up and the, these ladies in town, Natalie and uh, Katie started the drop, which is a similar type of thing. So they still have that project running locally. Um, whereas I didn't finish it. All right. Now, did you grow up in Ames? You said your parents were in Ames. No, they moved, they moved to Ames probably five years ago. Um, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. And all right. Now, did you come to Des Moines from Springfield or were you in New York? I'm trying to remember. I was in New York. Um, I was in New York for, I lived there for 10 months and then moved okay. down. Kind of, I've lived a few different places, been around a little bit, but but yeah, ended up, ended up here in Des Moines. So you've been involved in quite a few startups, actually. Um, you've touched several. I know we, you gave me a bit of a list before we got started, but tell me about 19th Hole Swag. What was that one? So that was that was kind of my first startup, you know, like like just trying to to see if I could, you know, create something that I wanted to exist. At least what I wanted as like a kid, and and bring it bring it to life. And it started. It was a golf fashion flash sale website. So I am a golfer, and as a kid growing up playing golf, you know, you can't really couldn't really find like the best golf clothes at your pro shops and stuff, at least for younger people. And, um, I started it with an actor named Ryan Merriman and we, you know, ran it, gave it a shot for a couple of years, had, had some sales that did really well, but eventually the community was so small that it fizzled out after a couple of years, we were weren't able to keep growing, but that was kind of my first foot in the door in like e-commerce and, even developing, like I kind of learned how to code to build that website and run that website and ran it for a couple of years. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my, my first swing at, at trying to be an entrepreneur. What did you take away from that? I mean, what did, we all learn every time we do something, but what do you think you really, what do you still remember from that experience that you apply going, you know, on businesses today? Um, there's a lot of this, so I don't do any coding anymore. So working with developers on different projects, like able to understand them a little better because I, you know, try to do it myself. Um, that's like, like in working with developers are, you know, a bit different than working with like salespeople or marketing people, like, like, like just a different way of thinking and, and going about learning how to build a project. Um, other things just there's, there was, a lot of tools that I took from that that I still use today as far as when I wanted to find or get one of these fashion brands that are, you know, pretty successful, maybe outside the golf world or in the golf world and, and wanted 
them to have a sale on our, our site, um, a couple tools I used was to find the CEO's email or the right person's email, the decision makers, and, and kind of search their name, their domain, find their emails and, and shoot them a cold email because when they forward it to their employee, it works you know, a little better than if I just cold email you know, the customer service website. Yeah. And, and in my projects now is as I'm doing sales with this PPE stuff um, that I've been using that tool probably the most. And, and yeah. that was my way to learn how the whole sales process kind of goes to. And then a few different marketing tricks. Um, I remember when I started that, I used this website called clarity.ff, which was a website where you paid per minute to talk to different mentors you could find. Um, different people with different areas of expertise. And, and I remember like, like parts of it where I was learning how to, how to get press. And one of the mentors I found on there, she was a senior editor for a fashion for New York magazine. And oh, so nice. I could just reach out to and, and teach me the way how to do it. So in most aspects of it, I took it as like a learning experience, like a school, I guess a stepping stone to, you know, further enhance what I want to do. And, and I think a lot of those lessons from the first startup, um, I still carry with me today. That's interesting. You talk about sales because I think it's one thing that people really underestimate is what it takes to sell a product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're all first, we're infatuated with our ideas. Then we're infatuated with our products. And then we want to build a company and, you know, products about 20% of a company in my view, is <laughs> so much else to- to, to really grow a company, not just to do it by yourself, but to grow a company. It's so much more. And I have to say, I, I, I think you're wise to have written some code, even if it didn't end up being something you, you know, you'd say you're great at, or you want to do long-term because I'm a programmer as well. And I haven't coded in over 30 years, but I still have a better perspective of what those coders go through. And, you know, you're right. It's a different, it's a different breed of person because it takes a different skill set to do that kind of work. Now you you said you also were involved in Service International. You did liquidation of medical scrubs, uh, eBay. Tell us about that. So it started by a mess up from my parents, actually. Um, so my parents about and this story will wrap up to like what I'm doing now with with the, the stuff. Um, and so. Around like 2009, my parents brought in like like our family owns a garment factory in Bangladesh, and my family's like my parents are from Bangladesh, and they had kind of a handshake deal with the hospital on these medical scrubs. If they brought them over here, then the hospital would purchase them, and so they went and took a bank loan out um, for a whole bunch of medical scrubs to be brought over here. And when they ended in like three months later, when they brought over here, the hospital ended up going with someone else. And so they were stuck with all this inventory and all this loan. And they, you know, couldn't really find a way in to sell these products and try a whole bunch of different things. And then as I was running 19th whole swag, um, and this was, you know, four or five years after you know, my parents have still been holding on, trying to sell this, this inventory, just, just collecting dust and costing money. Um, and because I was running out full swag, which helped me liquidate other people's, you know, excess inventory. I was like, well, and like individually, like, let me try this for the scrubs. Cause we've been trying to sell them in bulk forever. Let's just sell them individually and just sure. try and get them. 
And I, yeah, on eBay, um, started listing all of their products at liquidation rates. And what I learned very quickly was no one else was doing that on eBay because everyone else that, that had the products, they had a certain wholesale price that they had to pay and they had to get their money back. They were retailers. And so we kind of became the first ones that, that liquidated inventory individually at bulk pricing. Um, for people. So everyone had access to that pricing. And so, and within three months, I sold all of my parents' inventory and um, got them their money back. And that kind of got the wheels turning. I was like, well, I can do this for other companies in the liquidation space. I've already kind of built this brand on, on eBay. And then I started reaching yeah. out to all these other companies the same way I did with 19th Hole Swag. And they all had the excess inventory and they needed to get rid of it because that's an anchor to a business, you know, all the extra overhead. And they let me kind of sell and run a drop shipping program at individual rates. And that's something that I still continue today. Yeah, it's amazing. People don't understand the cost of holding old inventory like that. Uh, or And not, not even that it's old, but just inventory that isn't moving because it's all that cash that's tied up. Mm-hmm. Whether you in your parents' case where they actually had to borrow the money, oh my gosh, or you're just using your own working capital limits what you're going to do going forward. So having all that excess inventory and, and turning inventory is a huge issue that you know most retailers totally talk it every day, but if you're new to all this, that, that's, a, that's a whole other place. So your parents, you were able to get your parents out of the inventory then. Yeah. Yep. And they, did they did they get whole on their money? They did. And the the funny part to to think about is sort of like how hardworking you know my parents are, especially my mother in this space, because my mother had sold her she ran a sandwich shop in Springfield, had sold it, and was kind of staying at home, not doing anything. Like as I started this. Um, to help them out. And so my mom was a one woman show, turned their entire basement into an operation center to ship these scrubs out every day. And a yeah, 65 year old little Bengali woman packaged probably 80,000 um, separate boxes of, of medical scrubs in like three months and, and got them all out the door. Oh, she had the harder job. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> you definitely have the easier side of that. All right. Well, tell me about Boss Brims. Um, that was a project that me and Matt Biscus here in Des Moines um, started. It was a, it's a crowdfunded hat designer. So basically what sites like Teespring does where people design their shirts and sell their shirts. We want to do that with hats. And so we kind of, we built the product and, was kind of red, getting ready to go full swing. Like here in Des Moines, if you look at a bunch of the Des Moines flag hats, we were kind of the first ones to work with them to get those out. Um, but then we had like the next project was a fishing project that kind of took over our lives. So we never actually got this release. But what's funny is since the products built, um, one of my business partner on this current project I'm working on, Tim runs his own branding business. And he reached out to me like yesterday, seeing if, if we could, you know, spin this back up and, and turn it into, you know, a product. So it's like, since the code was built, you know, one thing, pushing it aside and working on something else, like, like it's still useful. And so, and so that's something that we might spin back up here. Soon. Interesting. So you, are you still doing, you said the liquidation piece? The medical scrubs. Yes. Yeah. Oh, 
Medical scrubs, yeah. And so are you going to have, I mean, how many roles are you going to have here? It sounds like you've got yourself in several different things. Um, or, or are you staying on the side on Boss Brims? So the liquidation on the medical scrubs, it is, I've built it out to where it's very minimal work for me. You know, as far as like take a full-time job is kind of just a routine now. And, and most of my stuff is automated on that one. Um, as far okay. as label forwarding it to the right person, that kind of thing. And all that I'm really doing is collecting an inventory list and a pricing list every week and entering those numbers. And then if there's some customer service stuff that doesn't go through the automatic checkboxes and that comes to me, but other than that, it, it doesn't take much time. Um, but uh, the majority of my time is, is spent on what we're doing right now at One World Supplies, um, bringing PPE from overseas to here. Yeah, well, before we get to One World, I want to ask you about one more because, I mean, you've done a lot of different things. But match play fishing, that was pretty compelling. Is it still going on? Is it going to go on? And what is it? It is, it is with Lucas, my, one of my, uh, my previous business partner. Right now, I'm focused full-time on One World Supplies. It's kind of demanded all of my attention um, right away. So I am no longer working on that project. But it was a project that... We got pretty close to the finish line and to, to get started. So so hopefully Lucas gets that gets that thing done and, and out there pretty quick. But it's a competitive fishing app um, that allows people to compete against each other by using their phones to score the fish that they catch. And so it's kind of taking barriers out of tournaments so anyone around the world can compete against anyone around the world in, in fishing. Which is really interesting because, you know, for those who don't know about fishing, there it's really competitive. And there's so many different types of fishing. I mean, I've, you've seen, I think, some of the bass fishing contests got real popular for a while. You'd see TV shows. It, it, I don't remember exactly when it was, but, I mean, these people, the amount of money that's spent, it's just crazy. The, the boats and the racing across the water and all that. But, you know, it's the same thing. I've done a couple. Of, uh, I like fly fishing. I've only done it a couple times, but I really like it. You, you meet these guides, and they are super competitive about what they catch and so this idea of being able to have a virtual contest is really, really compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's, you're thinking that's still going to go on then? Yeah. I think Lucas, Lucas is still full speed ahead on that. Um, and that was, he's my business partner that, that was, you know, kind of the brains behind it. And, uh, and yeah, he's still kind of all in. He started a YouTube channel for fishing and, even that side of it, the popularity on the YouTube channel is like mind blowing, like let alone the money blew our minds, but the, the amount of people um, that are kind of obsessed yeah. with this um, is, is also mind blowing. But yeah, he's, he's full speed ahead on that. Don't you think part of the reason that so many people are involved in fishing is it has such a low cost of entry. I mean, if you're not crazy about it, you can get a fishing, you can start fishing pretty cheap. Yeah, I think it's, I, yeah. And, and what makes, fishing unique in a way that like so i played golf and where golf is is different like you have the low entry but you have every layer of cost at, at like whatever skill you want like if you want to live the really expensive fishing life get the boats do the sport fishing all that you can do that but if you just want to go to the banks and compete you can do that too and and that's one thing our hope for the app was um and then still is for lucas is the fact that the kids on the bank can compete against, you know, the people on the boats based on their knowledge of where to go to, um, that, that kind of stuff that, that we're hoping we can kind of bridge some of that gap. 
Yeah, I mean, you, when you get down to the kids on the bank, as you say, or, or I live downtown, and there's a lot of people that fish off the bridge in the evenings, and you're getting into a lot larger population of people. I mean, you focus on the professionals. It's a small group. I mean, the, the people that can buy the $50,000 boat and drop all that money and do it down here full time and pull the boat with a $50,000 truck. I mean, there aren't a lot of those that can afford to do that. So small market. But you're doing what you guys are doing. I, I think so compelling is it gets to a really big. So let's get to, to, to one more supplies. Tell us the background. How did that happen? And, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. But tell us how it got kicked off. Okay, so this was right around the time when it, the it started hitting in the news that there was PPE shortages, like like for hospitals in the in the U.S. So I kind of put together a few of you know my friends at Gravitate, you know where, where my office is, co working space, and people with different kind of skill sets and, and just talk to them like, like, let's see if we can do something. Let's see if we can get some product. Let's, let's try and do it. I had some experience from my parents bringing the medical scrubs in from Bangladesh and my family owns a factory in Bangladesh. And um, the other people on the team had various different experiences in, in kind of, in kind of running things. And like Camille at the time was also um, Camille Renee is one of my co-founders um, at the time. She was actually looking at getting just designer face masks, you know, for regular people, which right now regular people need a mask. But back then it wasn't quite the thing that all, that all people had to wear masks all the time. Um, so she was already, you know, kind of working on that side. And then when I did the digging, I saw the hospitals, like we need to kind of like, we should scrap that, you know, that'll come, but, but we can get the exact products the hospital needs Let's see if we can find them. And then we found out um, for an order of, of masks, the minimum order was for respirator masks, the minimum order was, was 10,000. And so we just got started. It was, it's Tim, Tim Bastine, Julian Duatois, Camille, and myself. We, and all individual entrepreneurs in their own rights and successful in their own ways kind of came together and, and we started to see if we could pull together different orders to reach a 10,000 minimum for the people that needed it. And things just happened so fast where within three days, we were introduced to, to Bob Ritz, the CEO of, of Mercy, who introduced us to John Fry, their head of supply chain at Dignity Health. And, and within you know three, four days of doing it, we had a PO for 4 million masks. And yeah, and so, and, but, but the number was the exact number that we were told was a maximum that we could get in a month. So I was like, it was perfect. Um, then when the number came in, that the, the numbers that we had from the factory and the timeline that we were looking for. So we got started with that and then have continued to work with Dignity Health with, with various different orders and, and hopefully moving into um, in the next week or so more of an annual um, subscription model for them since, you know, the second wave of COVID is coming. They want to lock in some factories, but it just got started so quickly and then things have just yeah been going kind of crazy on that side for us. Everyone's kind of working 15, 15 hour days and I've been doing it since since March since we got started. But but it's been a rewarding ride. I remember the first time that we got our products here. Uh, the first batch of products that got here was such a fulfilling thing. 
because we were helping so many people. Like they needed these products. It's all over the news. They needed these products. And the fact that we were able to, to help and be successful in helping um, yeah. was, was it, like, it felt really good. Well, yeah. Talk about making a difference. Cause it, you know, you and I can put on a, a mask and it's, it's just being out and about. I saw you the other day. We were both in central the other day having, having lunch and, we had our masks and, and so did you, you had the nicer one, by the way, but you know, when you're a, a health worker, my brother's a nurse, I mean, these things are critical. They've got to be right. And you, it isn't like you can just go without, uh, the, the risk is so, so high. So you got that first order. I mean, 10,000 was your ask and you got 4 million. I like that. That's, <laughs> that that's, can be just as big of a challenge though, in some ways. I think you've expanded from just mercy. I mean, are you doing this for a lot of different groups now or tell me where the business is headed? Um, yeah. Yeah. And then going back to like when we started the, the, the hardest thing for us was as we were kind of expanding on products was finding, you know, vetted factories because there was a lot of fraud that was going on. And so we had to be very, very with the factories we, we chose. Um, and, and so far have, have gotten better. For the first month, we couldn't find any new factories because going through all of these different websites and anywhere to find them, it's, you're not finding good stuff. Like, like it was really dependent on connections. And, and we got, you know, fairly lucky with, with a lot of the factories that, that we found that we work with now or are some of the like top, top factories. Um, we have expanded in not just hospital stuff. Um, we are doing, doing the hospital stuff with dignity health, but we've gotten also smaller clinics that, that we're bringing some stuff to. We donated a bunch of masks that, that from the big orders that, that come from mercy, we try and get as many extra as we can. And so we've been donating them to, to a bunch of smaller places. Um, and then other, as businesses are opening up a new PPE, they also, um, have very specific requirements that they need, whether it's a specific type of glove or sanitizer or disinfectant wipes or masks or whatever, whatever their PPE is. So we've gone sourced a bunch of those and we've brought products in for a few different local companies. Um, as far as like, like Casey's, uh, we, we brought in masks, um, gave brought masks to the principal also. And, and we are getting ready to fulfill a few different products for Wells Fargo. Um, and so locally we, we have with some of these different companies outside of the healthcare space, there seems that like the need has also grown so large for everyone to, to open up or have people in the office that, that, you know, that, that the whole world kind of needs some of these products. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You've gotten a long ways in what, maybe a hundred days you've been running. Is that about feels like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> But it's been a very short amount of time. That's that's truly amazing. Um, so, did I mean, is your family really entrepreneurial? I mean, you said your parents own a factory. Is this have they been entrepreneurs their whole life? Is- so the the factory was is not my parents' factory. So the way things oh, okay. are, like where my parents grew up, is they're all they're all arranged marriages, and so. This was one where my mom's sister married into um, guys. Now my uncle that, that um, owned one of the largest garment factories in Bangladesh. And so that's our connect. And right now that's run by my cousin. Um, and so he was actually kind of the first one I reached out to, to introduce us to a factory in China. 
and got on a three-way call with me. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time. And then the whole time he's yelling at me is like, no, 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 don't say this. Don't say this. But, but for my parents' side, not well, yeah, my mom owned a sandwich shop for, you know, 13 years in the city where I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, like a super sandwich shop and yeah. worked unbelievably hard at it. And my dad at the time um, ran or, or he's an animal food scientist and has been, you know, fairly successful in doing that, but has tried other business ventures, including the medical scrubs and, and has tried a few other things on the side. But, but as far as that, mostly from seeing my mom and how she ran her sandwich shop is where, is where I kind of started seeing the opportunity to think differently. And then also the part that I grew up playing golf and I grew up, the community I grew up in, um, the golf course that, that I played in growing up, I was surrounded by so many different kinds of successful people. And when you golf with someone, you spend all day with them and you really get to know them. Um, especially if you see the same people every week. And, and I started being around all different groups, all different ages of successful people and was kind of at an early age was able to, to kind of see like the people that were in business entrepreneurs that had been successful. There wasn't really anything different about them, their talents, their skill level, but anyone else, it was more just a style of thinking and a persistence with, and, and an obsession with learning how to get better was, was kind of things that I saw. And so as, as a young kid between my mom and then the people that I was surrounded by growing up, and I, would, I wouldn't hang out with my friends from high school. I was hanging out with those people all day at the golf course. And so, and so that really made me think that it wasn't impossible for me to become a successful um, startup owner. And the other thing was, I met a lot of start like like successful business people at the golf course that were just idiots, and so I was like, if if they do it, then yeah, I can at least figure out how to get to that level. Yeah, you find out there that not all successful people are necessarily brilliant at business. Some of them are just, I mean, let's face it, some are just really good at selling, right? Mm-hmm. And they just figure the rest out, and that. So I get it. Um, did you go to college, or did you do it straight into business? Um, I did go to college. I went to an HBCU school called Lincoln University and then went to the University of Missouri. And then right after college uh, is when I started 19 Full Swipe. Nice. Nice. Well, what does next year look like for you? What's the next 12 months look like? What do you think it holds for you? I mean, you've got a lot going on. So this PPE stuff... Um, about a couple of weeks ago, I reached, I reached out to, to our buyer, Dignity Health, and he told me because of the second wave, they're getting started looking at more annual commitments for, from factories rather than just purchasing spot buys. And he kind of told us what we need. We sent it in, so we're hopeful that, that we can get some of the annual stuff. But it has us thinking differently than in the past, where... A lot of companies that started when we did kind of fizzled out uh, in the PPE stuff. They couldn't find buyers. They couldn't get in the door. Other things happened um, where we've been really kind of fortunate with, with who our buyers are, that, that they're still looking at, at purchasing from us. And the fact that we're looking at, at these annual commitments. So the next 12 months, we're going to be busy with a bunch of different products um, that we're going to be committed to bringing in. And that also changes the dynamic of the company because now we know we have cash flow coming in. 
Whereas, you know, in these spot buys, we can't really commit to, you know, employees or other things coming down the road because we don't know when, when, you know, the next, the next bit of money's coming in. Um, so we are very focused on this. We've gotten started with some different government contract stuff, um, that we're pretty hopeful for. And those are also on an annual scale. Then other businesses here are now starting to look annually, like the second wave, I think from anyone looking at, at any data is seeing that this isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And, and the way things are kind of run in this country now, where every state's kind of for themselves and kind of doing the bare minimum to keep everything else open, like it's not going to stop. And, and so, yeah, we're going to be pretty busy for a long time sourcing products and, and bringing some products in for COVID. And then at the same time, we've kind of gotten started with products outside of immediate COVID products and starting to get into some surgical stuff with, for the hospitals and, and looking at it maybe expanding outside. So when this thing does slow down, we have a path moving forward, but but yeah, we're going to be, you know, pretty swamped here for, for a long while. It looks like. Well, it's a, at least you're being swamped because of success. So congratulations on that. So I, I really would like to ask you just as a wrap up question, tell us what you think of Des Moines. What, what, you've been here two years. Uh, I met you fairly soon after you got here. I think I'm just curious what your, what's your perspective on Des Moines? So, this is this is a question I get when I travel because people can't believe that I live in Des Moines. Um, and the 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 thing that comes down to me, so I kind of lived in a few different spots. And when I came to Des Moines, the thing that immediately grabbed me was the community here. And especially the startup community, and even at a smaller scale, the the community that I have in gravity, like my coworkers. And the thing is, everyone here is Iowa nice. So everyone will, you ask anyone, I need some advice. They always meet you for coffee. Um, and, and that's something that you don't get anywhere or like anywhere that I've been. Um, whereas anyone that's in a high level of something here will meet someone that hasn't in a high level just because, you know, they, they want to learn something. And and I found a, a great group of mentors and a lot of different different places here, you included, that have really, in my mind, accelerated my trajectory as, as an entrepreneur um, compared to when I was more so just by myself in, you know, in books and podcasts. You're going to learn so much. Um, and you can only get so far without help from a community in my mind. Um, you need a lot of people to lean on because it's a lot of learning very quickly and a lot of stress like when you're building startups. And so you need people lean on for advice. So the stress level kind of comes down. You can have some confidence a little bit in what you're doing. Um, but, but to me, the thing that stands out are the people that I've met and some of the relationships that I've built. I've met in my two years here, I've met enough people that I know that they're going to be my friends for the rest of my life. Like no matter what happens. Um, and that's something that, I hadn't had like a close group of friends even since probably since college. Um, and, and so the, the people here have been impressive to me. Um, and, and also the talent level, like, like, like that's just as impressive as how nice they are. Um, people that have accomplished all sorts of things in, in different places. Um, 
And, and yeah, that, that's the part that stands out to me. When people ask me what I, why I'm in Des Moines, it's, it's because of the group of mentors I have and the people I have. And then from my co-working space, I met such incredible talent that I watched them work for, you know, two years and kind of got to see what they were good at, what they weren't good at, what parts were they excelled. So it really helped me form a team of people that, that, and that allowed us to hit the ground running, that we had different people for different parts of, of when things happen. Um, but the people stand out. The, 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 it's, the rent is, is nice. Uh, coming from New York, you know, it's, it's like, man, it was like, like 70% cheaper for like twice the space. Um, and, then, and then, yeah, I, I would say like also not just startup communities, different communities. I found an Asian community here that, that I hang out with and, and play golf with now. And, and just, just, yeah, different groups of people is what stands out to me. And then the city is also very focused on helping entrepreneurs and, and like cultivating them, helping them grow. And so if you are starting a startup, you know, Des Moines is a great place for it. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I just want my listeners to know is I didn't put you up to that in advance. I actually asked you that question cold, but I, I agree with a lot of your sentiments. And I think that uh, places like Gravitate are an amazing place because when you're trying to get into an ecosystem, uh, if you move to Des Moines, there are some people to meet. And if you ask around enough, you'll find the right people to meet and so on. You walk into Gravitate and or any of the other co-working facilities that are out there, but although I think Gravitate's the largest um, you're immediately in a, in an ecosystem where you're part of it day in, day out, which is kind of what we miss when we don't work with a large group of people in a, in a company. You know, I used to work in a very large company where I had lots of friends that were coworkers and so on, and you don't always have that as an entrepreneur. So I think it makes a real difference to build that quick. Well, Sulhawk, I want to thank you for being on Startup Stories and wish you all the success in the world moving forward. Take care. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Small Business and Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by these stories, we offer a hub full of resources needed for any small business owner to grow and succeed in Greater Des Moines, Iowa at dsmpartnership.com slash small business. Thanks for listening.